Team Team, Boafik, I hope you're ready to discuss Caribbean literature. I'm Mayla, a romance author from Guadeloupe. This is how I present myself today, but it took me about 20 years to give myself permission to write about my people falling in love and finding happiness. Why? Well, thank you for asking and I'm going to tell you why. I never got to read about Caribbean people being happily in love until 2019. And chances are, especially if you're listening to this podcast in 2021, you probably haven't either. That's why I decided to record my discussions with Caribbean authors who will give you an idea of their motivations and the issues they faced to get their romance stories published. My hope is for you to be inspired to write, to buy, because we're here to support, and to read romance stories set in the Caribbean with Caribbean people. On why. Tim Tim, Boafik, welcome to episode 4, part 2. I know this episode was supposed to be uploaded last week, but things got hectic for me. I celebrated my birthday, I celebrated Caro Caramon's third anniversary, and I felt a bit overwhelmed as I wondered if I was heading in the right direction in my life and with all my online projects. So yeah, I'm so sorry for the delay and I thank you for your patience. Today we're in Antigua and Barbuda with Joanne C. Hillhouse, aka Joe Hadley. We talk about her books, Dancing Nude in the Moonlight and Musical Youth. We are black and beautiful. This is basically how I would sum up the feelings I had while reading her books. I'm not going to lie, I struggled a lot with the editing because Joan dropped so many gems about representation, about writing, about publishing, that I just didn't know where to cut. In this segment, we talk about the importance of writing from our point of view as Afro-Caribbean women and not from the white gaze perspective. We talked about being intentional to write our people in a multi-dimensional way and we also talked about the impact of her books on her audience. Her publishing journey is quite diverse, but her passion for writing and creating stories is as strong as when she started 20 years ago. I hope you will enjoy this discussion. With Dancing in the Moonlight, two things come to mind. Um, I started off, I think one of the first things that came to me was the title, and I didn't know what it meant. And one of the things that I held on to, because there were other titles suggested, and I was like, no, this, the title of this story is Dancing in the Moonlight. And one of the first things that came to me was the sisters, the, the, the two main sisters in the story, they were the most interesting dynamic to me. That's where I started because of my own sister dynamic. You know, writing draws from life in a lot of ways. And although the sisters are not reflective of me and my sister, just the idea that sisters can be, have the, the shared lived experience and be so different. And I think one of the things that drew me to dancing nude in the moonlight was differences. and finding connection within those differences. And also within those differences, how differently we see the same experiences. So the romance part of it was, I don't know, a guy and a girl go on a date. She experiences it in one way, he experiences it in another way. And they went on the same date. 
And that was what was interesting to me. And that kind of defined the structure of the book. I wanted to see how he felt and I wanted to see how she felt, how Michael felt, how Selena felt about the same things, about different things, about where the relationship was growing. So that was interesting to me. I started working on it in 1999, I believe. That's when I went to the Dominican Republic. I always try to feel where I am, walk, explore, hear the language, connect with the people. And so I found I did a lot of writing while I was there in the, um, a lot of poetry, a lot of shorter pieces. And then this, these characters started coming through. And because I had been there, I felt not necessarily a lived knowledge of the place. Obviously, I'm not from there, but I felt like I felt a little bit more grounded in telling the story and in understanding the character. We have a lot of immigrants from the Dominican Republic in Antigua. And we also have a dynamic where you have returning descendants of Antiguans who grew up in the Dominican Republic because Antiguans, like other people from the eastern part of the eastern Caribbean, other parts of the Caribbean would have traveled to um, parts of Latin America to, to work um, back in the early part of the 20th century. And so some would have stayed, some would have returned. And so there's all those dynamics um, that were interesting to me. And also that was an election year. So there was a lot of tension between the immigrant and I would say the local population because there's always the political football that politicians play in terms of pitting this against the other. We've seen how that has played out in the US in the past four or so years more. Um, so that element of othering, even though you're looking at two, in, in, if you're telling this story somewhere else, these are both people of color. So they're the same, right? Except no, we know that we're not a monolith and we're not all the same. We have different experiences. And so those tensions were interesting to me. And it's actually one of my greatest pleasures is, is that the people who I know who are connected with the Dominican community in Antigua, who have said that the book, that they feel the book captures that, that, that was really affirming, um, that, that sort of tension. And also that they, you know, that we're all at the end of the day, just people, um, just people trying to live our lives, trying to love, trying to make a way. And so those were the things that were interesting to me in Dancing in the Moonlight. And the romance, I enjoyed writing the sort of evolution of their connection, exploring some of my own relationships in the process, but that idea of how you work past your own barriers and your own fears and find a way to connect with someone. And then, of course, when that faith is betrayed, how you push past it or don't push past it, because some relationships don't work. So all those things, but it started with the sisters. The, answer, the, the short answer is it started with the sisters and it started with that sort of ping-ponging of point of view I was interested in from a technical standpoint. With Musical Youth, I decided to enter the Bert Award for Teen Young Adult Caribbean Fiction about two weeks out from the submission deadline. And I started writing. That's how Musical Youth came to be. Um, it was crazy to start writing a, a novel with a deadline two weeks ahead but I started anyway and I it wasn't even like I had a vacation or uninterrupted time it was it was the same thing I've had to do with all my books I've had to find the time within the gaps of other things that I need to do but somehow these kids were always there whenever I had the time it wasn't like I had to fight to go and look for them they were always there whenever I had and I was so enthusiastic to spend time with them so it never felt like all the missleep and all the other things, it didn't feel like a burden because I was just in a rush to, to tell this story. And I think part of it is that I knew that world. I was the girl with the guitar slung over her shoulder, going to practice, playing in the choir, being shy about it, being self-conscious about walking with the guitar. And then it just kind of took me back to 
the group of friends and the, the, the young romances and the, the cliques and the groups and how your, your, your friends, your cliques are your family in that time and all those things. And I guess again, differences, because here I have um, Zahara and Shaka across a divide of just two very different worlds. And then of course, because I can never write a simple, straightforward romance, I throw in generational romance, if you want to call it that, um, grandparents, and I throw in second generation romance with the parents and just a whole bunch of drama. That And that book, because I had so little time to really think it through before I, I mean, I didn't really think it through until I was editing and revising it. It was just following it and see where, see where it went and, and kind of having fun with it. And for me, the interesting things were the kids discovering their love of art and discovering their potential within the art space and connecting with each other through art. And of course, the opportunity, or not even the opportunity, the sort of instinctive urge to explore colorism um, in that space, because it exists in our spaces, our black spaces, our people of color spaces, it exists. So all those things were interesting to me. The romance, yes, but all of those other things as well. I could stay here and listen to you speak all day. <laughs> I'm glad that I'm not chatting too much nonsense. No, no, no. I, I just love hearing you speak about your books really you you sound so passionate and since I love those books too so I enjoy uh, hearing your thoughts about it so yeah each book kind of show the differences within the black community in the in the Caribbean and uh, I was wondering how do you come up with your physical descriptions? Is it hard for you to describe the skin color? Do you feel sometimes that it's something that you have to, to describe over and over again? And I'm asking this because when I read uh, US Black romance, it's something that I find Uh, that I find often in most of the books, even with uh, writers who are big in the U.S. Black, black romance, the characters are usually uh, brown-skinned. They don't have a lot of dark-skinned characters. And even when there are dark-skinned characters, they're usually men. So women are usually brown-skinned or light-skinned with hazel eyes, curly hair. There are actually not a lot of diversity from my point of view. When I was reading uh, Dancing Noon in the Moonlight and um, Musical Youth, you would just say he's black and move on. And I, I, yeah, um, sorry, <laughs> and I thought it was great. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> as, I'm listening, as I'm listening to you, part of what I hear, because I agree with you that you do see those, you know, you know, she was the color of cappuccino and all that sort of thing a lot. Um, it has to do, I think it has a little bit to do with the white gaze and, and kind of over explaining ourselves. But I also think it has to do with us trying to find, you know, colorful descriptors for this thing that we don't often see described. But I don't think, because I, okay, for me, I don't write from an audience in standpoint, I don't think I haven't been guilty of it. I mean, Selena is Dominican and the description of her, what he saw as beautiful. She was not a dark-skinned Black woman. Similarly, Zahara is not a dark-skinned Black woman, described her as being like a rusty penny. But one of the things I was glad to explore in that book is that 
Okay, because one of my pet peeves is this idea that we have this, we call them the butter skin in Antigua, the, the, the light skin. You know, if a guy thinks a light skin girl is pretty and the default is a light skin girl is pretty, then she's a butter skin. Um, so for me, the, the, the subversion of that that I wanted to do was what if the light skin girl doesn't feel pretty? And what is the most confident girl in the book is the dark skin girl. And that's why I might, one of my favorite characters to write was the character who became, um, I guess, Shaka's nemesis during the production because she was just so sure of herself, but also unsure of herself. And I guess the thing is, is I'm not writing them as caricatures. I'm writing them as, you know, people with all of their contradictions. So I don't really think about it like what their skin color is, unless it's relative or, or sorry, relevant to the story. Shaka's skin color was relevant to how he had been treated what he had been teased about, why we call somebody, I don't know, Shaka Zulu, as though that's an insult. And because he had positive reinforcement in his household, he was able to own it and become it as an affirmation. So again, subverting that idea that the blacker you are, the less desirable you are. His ownership of that name and his confidence and his talent, his talent made him the most desirable. And so it wasn't about his skin color, although his skin color was not irrelevant. The skin color is not irrelevant, not in a world that has racism and colonialism and colorism. It is relevant. How do we navigate? And the white gaze, but how do we navigate it? How do I write my characters? How do I describe my characters? I write them as I see them. I describe them as I see them. But as I was saying to um, people in my workshop recently, it's not, it's also a point of view within the story in the sense that the way Selene is described has a lot to do with how Michael sees her in Dancing Nude in the Moonlight. You know, that knock, knock you off your feet, love at first sight feeling that he had because in a way he had glorified that kind of beauty that she represented. And she was a particular person, but also this other thing. So those issues, to be honest with you, are not, not in my books, but I'm in a way trying to consciously explore them. Um, and I don't describe my characters. I try not to. I try consciously not to describe my characters for the white gaze, but we describe them in relation to each other. And as much as is necessary for the story. It's, it's what serves the story and it's what the other characters see and respond to that kind of drives the descriptions. And you know, when I read your books, I think it was the first time that I saw a character being called Black and being called Beautiful at the same time, because in it's not like I've read every Caribbean book written ever, <laughs> but uh, in those that I've been reading for the past three years now. I mean, I'm trying to really focus on the French Caribbean literature. Like I just finished reading my, all Marie Condé's novels. I don't know how to, to explain, but- I get, I, get, I get what you say. I do think that that happens in the fiction a lot because it's a reflection of the reality. We have a long journey to self-love still, even in 2021. That's one of the things I was trying to explore in, in musical youth, especially. Um, but that, what you said there, thank you for saying that, that, you know, black and beautiful was something that I was affirmed in, in one of my books that you read, because one of my pet peeves among my people, and I love my people, is the way we say black butt. And I feel like I'm on a mission to correct that in some ways, if not always in my writing, but I think black is beautiful. I think we are beautiful and varied 
one of the things that was done to us, one of the lasting legacies of enslavement and colonialism is that instinctive, if not erasure of that, but of our beauty, of our, of our love of self, then almost hatred of it. And that's why you have bleaching and that's why we've had to reclaim our natural hair. That was a journey to self-love. All of that is part of the journey, is part of the conversation. But when someone describes someone as Black in a derogatory sense and the person saying it is themselves is themselves Black, it, it's jarring to me because it speaks to some kind of cognitive dissonance in terms of understanding that you're describing yourself and you're rejecting yourself. And so every time I hear someone say black butt, and it still happens too much, black butt, as in the, the, but, the black is the negative and the butt is the something good that they're going to say. And it's meant as a compliment, you know, black butt smart, black butt beautiful. But no, black and. How about just beautiful? How about just smart? And so if I, if, if I can um, have that conversation in, in the creative space without being preachy about it, then that's a good thing. But I, I understand I mean, Marissa Conde is one of our literary legends, and I understand how in reflecting the reality and in critiquing the reality, there's a lot of pain in, in, in so much of Black fiction and Black literature because so much of our history has been painful. But you know what? We also laugh, we also dance, we also sing, we also eat and love and have sex and all the things. You know, we can, um, I don't know, find hopefully within the creative imagination, this space to explore all these other dimensions of ourselves and not just the pain. I know, um, for, I'm thinking of, of Hollywood films and how every Hollywood film, every fifth Hollywood film, it felt like we might get a Love Jones or a Brown Sugar or Really Love, but nine times out of 10, we were getting a slave narrative, a civil rights narrative, a gangland narrative. And it's not that those stories don't exist. I don't believe in pretending that the past and the present problems don't happen, don't exist, but it's adding texture and color and, and nuance to that and showing our humanity inside of that and in spite of that, that is interesting to me. I love these people that I write. By the time I'm finished writing them, even the problematic ones, I, I've fallen in love with them and I want good things for them. And I'm hoping that they find a way to some self-love as well. I mean, obviously they're not perfect people, you know, when you were talking about how we laugh and we love and we sing and we dance. And so we do things that make us happy. That's also something that I'm very intentional about when I'm writing and what I'm looking for in books now. In the, in the Caribbean bookstagram community, I feel like we, we're going through a phase. We, we're trying to, to figure out how to enjoy this kind of representation in our literature. I know it sounds weird said like that, I mean, but it's like whenever there's a, a book where the Caribbean characters are, are just living their ordinary lives and there's no dramatic scene, like a character dies or something like that, or if the characters are, let's say, middle class, sometimes I see the comments, it doesn't feel Caribbean, so yeah. it, 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 so that's kind of a debate around what does authentically Caribbean means. And I realized that it happens often with books featuring love stories between Caribbean characters and with characters that are from the middle class and upper middle class. 
So for you, what would authentically Caribbean mean? The thing that came to mind just now um, is, you know, in the rap community, they used to have this thing called keeping it real and who was keeping it real. And I always used to find it kind of for me, because I'm a huge rap fan. And for me, the keeping it real wasn't about, wasn't rapping about guns and gang culture. It was rapping your truth. What rapping what was authentic and real to you. For me, this is going to sound weird, but I think, a, I think of a rapper like Eminem, he was rapping about, you look at a song like Lose Yourself, he's rapping about being scared. And he's rapping about the struggles in his life with his mother. And he's rapping about, um, his his daughter and trying to be a good dad and all that stuff and that fear that you're never going to catch your dreams because you know you only get one shot and all that to me that's keeping it real right so when I think of authentically Caribbean Caribbean is not one thing we are also majority black but we are not only black we have Indo-Caribbean people we have white Caribbean people we have indigenous Caribbean people we have Chinese Caribbean people we have um, Middle Eastern Caribbean people. What is real to them? What is their story? Is that not authentic? So for me, I always say that my stories are very much grounded, no matter the genre. In a way, even though they don't happen in Artis Antigua, in a way, they're kind of grounded in Artis Antigua. I feel the, the earth under my feet. I, I smell the gutters. I, 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 I know what, the, I know what the, the, the texture of the world feels like. And so that kind of grounds me, and then I can lift out from that. When I, when I do the Wadadi Youth Pen Prize, I try to encourage the participants. That's one of the things is to write a story that's specific, not generic, not general, but specific. Because a lot of what happens is the thing that I hear you saying uh, that gets criticized is that you're writing this story in this sanitized space. The walls are white and the, the wood has no texture and the air has no smell. Where is it? And I think maybe that's what some people are pushing back on. It's like, where, where's the story? I don't feel the space that the story exists in. And I don't know which stories you're speaking of specifically, but I think that's what happens sometimes when we think, okay, we're just going to write and focus on the romance or whatever. We forget that the romance has to happen or, or for the best experience of writing it and of reading it happens somewhere specifically to specific people. And I think that's what, writing authentically means for me it, it's it's not general it's specific and that specificity means that it's going to look like different things depending on who's writing it there's certain experiences that i don't know i am a black caribbean woman from artis antigua and there are a million ways i can explore what that means even if i'm setting a story in outer space and so that that grounds me and then i can fly and as long as i'm grounded in that then the authenticity i think will hopefully come through. And as long as I adhere to, because I write from a very character-driven space, um, character is how I enter story. So hopefully that specificity of character will also lend authenticity to the story. So I don't think there's any one way to be Caribbean specific. I think that's the beauty of us. We are not one thing. I don't think people, I don't think even we realize how diverse we are. To be honest with you, I think sometimes when people complain about the story lacking authenticity, yes, sometimes it can be, a failure to open up to other types of experiences, but it can also be that it feels like it's not grounded in anything specific and that can feel too general to connect with. 
So that might be some of what's happening. Again, I don't know which books is speaking of specifically, but for me, to be authentically Caribbean is to be true to my characters, to be true to their experiences, and to be specific about their experiences and their world, and to take the time to figure out who they are. I wrote a character in a book called Oh God, who didn't grow up in Antigua. I don't know that world. I don't know that. I don't know her story, but by sitting with her and spending time with her, she was coming back to Antigua and I know Antigua. So I could write that part of it easily, but I, she was the one I had to grapple with and try to figure out why are you coming here and how, and then I had to use other things to tap into her fish out of waterness that she was feeling. You know, I had to, to use my own feelings of um, being outside of things sometimes and try to expand that and amplify that. And of course, do a lot of research and so on and, and find ways to ground her. But to me, it's character specific character specificity and specificity of space, of place, and um, kind of trying to take that journey with them that makes it authentic, not quote unquote, keeping it real by doing this particular thing that is defined as real. And that's, that's the connection to hip hop culture. Because these things define real if they are your real experiences. But if you're rapping about guns and you've never held a gun, then what are you doing, right? So for me, it's about being authentic and being true to what grounds you and being specific to what grounds your characters and the world that they inhabit. Well, I, I won't tell you the books I'm, I'm talking about because I, I've seen this debate like on my IG feed like every two months. <laughs> so it's, it, it's really, sometimes it's because of the language. It doesn't feel authentic. Or when I see the debate is, is about more about the space and where the characters Um, live uh, where they work but in the meantime since I'm not English Caribbean so as an English Caribbean person how many times have I been watching a Hollywood film with someone doing a Caribbean accent and it sounds fine to Americans but to a Caribbean person it sounds inauthentic and then unspecific because if the character is from Grenada why do they sound Jamaican or if they're from Barbados why do they sound Dominican Levels of particularness that people who are from the culture are going to be more picky about. And in part because it's it's so underrepresented that, you know, people who are underrepresented get very, um, I guess, possessive of the art, have a certain ownership of it. But um, I don't know. It's, it's, it's kind of, as you said, it's subjective in the sense that then somebody else reads it and say, yeah, I rock with it. I feel it. And You know, that's the beauty of it. It's art, right? It's it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna resonate with some people and it's not gonna resonate with others. When you spoke about language, one of the things that one of my one of my favorite and one of my least favorite comments about my one of my books, one one of the favorite comments, this was a non-Caribbean person who had posted on Amazon a review. And I think it was Ogad, and they said reading Ogad, they felt like they could like land down in St. John's and just start talking the language. They felt so immersed in it. That they felt like they could do that. And then at the same time, Caribbean and Antiguan people specifically are reading it and saying, yeah, you got it right. And how I try to do it is I, again, I write it how I hear it. I'm not even trying to be, I'm immersed in the rhythm and the sound of it. I speak it. And so I'm just writing it as I hear it. Um, so when someone else, this is a review that I didn't like, said, I wrote it as though I wanted you know, I'm writing it for other people, like the white gays or whatever, to understand it. That kind of ticked me off because that was never a consideration. You know, um, I don't, I write it how I write it because maybe because I'm not educated enough in the ways to spell it, the way it's supposed to spell it, for it to be whatever. I write it how I hear it. And it's such an oral language that is expressed orally. Um, 
And I've lived my whole life with it. I'm writing it from that space and from the characters' mouths and so on. So um, I do not ever want to be inauthentic in the sense that I do not want to be untrue to my characters and how they speak and how they sound. But how that, how that resonates with people, I have no control over that. You know, and if it resonates with people, I have no control over that. And if people think I'm being fake or false or whatever, that again, I can't control. All I can try to do is be true to myself and be true to my characters. And I suppose that's, that's what any author can try to do. And then the readers will argue about it on Bookstagram. Yes. Um, and I, I think uh, the more books we get, uh, the more uh, diversity and representation we get also. And uh, we see the, the different experiences, like you said, in the different communities that you can have in the Caribbean. <laughs> you know, you were talking about the reviews that you got. Uh, I know for me, I published a really short story on my blog last December. And uh, someone commented, it, it was someone from Guadeloupe, actually. And uh, she said, uh, she said she really enjoyed the story, but she said that I should translate the few sentences in Creole that I have because I just wrote the Creole sentences and keep going in the dialogues. It wasn't even in, in, the, in the narrative part. It was always in the dialogues. And it was like three sentences in the overall story. So to me, it wasn't really big. And I felt like in context, you could understand what they meant anyway. And even if you didn't, it wasn't important anyway. And- I don't know, for me, for me um, that is one of those hills I would die. Like, I mean, I am not even a fan of, um, you know, those things that they put, I forget the name, they put at the back of the book to explain what this is and what that is. I'm not even a fan of those. Anytime I've seen those in any of my books, it's the publisher insisting on it. Because I feel like, you know what? We've had to read a lot that we've had to figure out in context. You'll be okay if you have to figure out three sentences in Creole. You won't die, you know? Yes. Um, and the story will live. I mean, that someone from your culture is saying that to you is a part of that internalization of the white gaze and the whole idea of when we have to explain it. No, we just have to express it and, and live it. Exactly. Express it. And if you express it well, then hopefully the story will be so good. I remember, I've watched movies in complete foreign languages. Complete. I've watched movies from the Netherlands and because I was so invested and I want to know, I, I've heard about this movie. I can't find it an English translation or variation with um, subtitles, but I want to watch it anyway. So I'm going to watch it. And by the end, I got it. I figured it out enough to enjoy the story. It's doable. And we're not, I mean, we're not writing the whole thing in Creole. I mean, you look at, I mean, it, it, now, as you said, it's not even a narration. You read somebody like Sam Salva. One of my great discoveries in my teens was Sam Sullivan, just seeing somebody writing in the rhythm of Creole language without apology, in that free associative way, that freedom that gives you to just be yourself. I mean, come on. If you can't be yourself in the creative space, where can you be yourself? <laughs> I swear I could listen to you all day. <laughs> Tim Tim, Tim Tim, How did you get your first book published? My first published book was The Boy from Willowbend. I had written, I started writing that book um, years earlier and finished it and written, even written Dancing Nude in the Moonlight before I got a publishing deal for the first book. So I did not know how to get published. 
um, this was late 90s, early 2000s. So the internet, um, Google was not as was not a thing to just go and Google it kind of thing. So, so it was just keeping my ear to the ground and trying to hear every opportunity. Um, I sent away for books like The Writer's Market to find out about publishing and so on. You can find that stuff online now. That's a huge ass book that costs a ton of money, but it had a lot of information that I found useful. But in the end, Boy from Willigan Ben got published because I ran into someone who knew that a publisher was looking for book for um from the Caribbean. I had recently quit my job and I remember I wandered into a bookstore and the first person I told I just quit my job was the bookstore guy. Because <laughs> I was, you know, that feeling you're you're just everything is your 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 nerves, everything. And he said, Oh, Matt Miller is starting a, a line of um Caribbean writers series. Maybe you should send him because I think he would have seen or heard about the boy from Willoughby because I submitted it to other things over the years and nothing planned out. Mm-hmm. So he said that and he gave me the I think he gave I think he either, either sent me to the website or gave me the email address for the commissioning editor. And I reached out and then I sent the book. I sent the manuscript, which had been edited by a friend of mine by that point, um, who was also my editor at the paper that I worked at. And they liked it. And then they signed an editor. And that was a good editing experience. Um, The editor that I worked with, there was a lot of back and forth and give and take. She would ask me to explain certain things. I mean, she insisted on the glossary at the back. That's, you know, the publisher or whatever. But I would have preferred no glossary. So that's the only thing. But I would say that, for my entire publishing career, there has not, I've not felt like my arm has been twisted to change something that I can't live with or that I couldn't see the point of changing. And whenever it felt like my arm was being twisted, then I pulled it out of the person's hand. I'm very loyal to my story and my characters. And I sit with the edit notes and I, I take them bit by bit and I try to make sure that I'm okay with them. And I also try to make that I'm not fight, make sure that I'm not fighting them just to fight them because it's my story and I'm not going to change a word. I'm not going to be that person. So I try to sit with them and fight through whatever instinctive defensiveness I have and um, then do what is best for the story. And so with that editor, that person edited The Boy from Willowbend and Dancing in the Moonlight. And that was a good editing experience. The stories were better for it. And the stories had been edited before I submitted them, um, as I mentioned. And um, so that was my first publishing experience. The bad part of it would have been, I really made no money on those books. And then Macmillan kind of let them go out of print. And I felt frustrated you know, you feel frustrated with all the energy you come into the experience and, and thinking that it's going to be this thing and, and they're going to put the book up for awards and they're going to send you on book tours and they're going to do this and they're going to do that and all that doesn't happen. And I just, so I think one of the things I took away from the Macmillan experience was get my rights back, try to get the books back in print. And when you do, hustle your ass off because you have to be a book's biggest advocate. The publisher, whether big or small, is going to do what they're going to do, but what are you going to do? And so that's something I've had to um, fight to do, to push my fo- myself, push my foot in the door. And to be honest with you, because I'm naturally introverted, it's hard to do it. It's exhausting to do it. Like social situations sap my energy and speaking up proactively saps my energy being in those rooms. But I do it because I know what it is to have good books go out of print because either the publisher didn't believe in them or I didn't put, or I thought the publisher was going to do more than they were. So that has been my experience. And since then, I've published with different publishers. Um, the Boy from Willowbend was reissued with Hansip, which is also in the UK, like Macmillan, but it's a smaller press with a more Caribbean focus, independent press. And um, 
that book has had a long life because it's it's been um, added, read, added to reading lists in Antigua and in Anguilla. Um, those are the places that I'm aware of. So it's still in print. Dancing in the Moonlight has had a more checkered history. It's, it's placed with a, a Canadian imprint called Insomniac. And it has not done as well as I know the story should do. Because the story, and I'm basing that on reader response, I just feel like people haven't had the opportunity to discover the book. So that book, I still have to figure out what else I'm going to do there. And then, of course... Oh God, similarly, I had been many years struggling and then I had this book and Eric Jerome Dickey, who I met at the literary festival here in Antigua, we had a literary festival at the time, um, Christine Lincoln, who recommended that I sit down when I asked her to look at the book, she recommended that I try out, I tried to apply for fellowship to the Breadloaf Conference in, workshop, sorry, in, in Vermont. And I did that and while I was there, I was in a workshop with Ursula Hage. I was an international fellow and I worked on Oh God, some more. When I came back, I had two um, possible contacts in terms of agents that I decided rather than trying to find another publisher to try to find an agent, which is just as hard as trying to find a publisher. But I wanted an advocate. So I took, an, I took some more months, probably a whole year, trying to rework the book again and then resubmitted it and agent found a home for it. It placed with Simon and Schuster. Um, that book too is now out of print, but... You know, some good things happened to it while it was in print. It was um, recommended on NPR by um, Elizabeth Nunes. It it got my 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 name and my writing into a space that it hadn't been before. Um, and then, of course, with Musical Youth, that was a book that got published because I submitted it to a competition. And then that competition came with a publishing contract. And the first opportunity I ever had to select from various publishers, because I had different publishers bidding for the opportunity to publish the books that came through the Bert Award because those books would then have a minimum buy from the, the code, the Bert Award people. So they were going to buy and distribute the books. So there was already an established market. So um, I went with Caribbean Reads because I wanted to go with, a, well, obviously they're all Caribbean presses, but this one was Eastern Caribbean. And I had some, I considered a number of options, but in the end I went with them. And it's been a good relationship, I think. Musical Youth is, a, is now on its second edition, Uninterrupted. It's been received a star review in Kirkus. It's been picked as one of Kirkus's top 100 indies of, of 2020. Um, this is after it's been out for a while. So it's the second edition. They finally read it and they were like, yeah, this book is good. And going back to what we spoke earlier about in terms of genre, in terms of placement in the marketplace, it was on their list of teen young adult books and it was also on their list of romances. Books don't exist in one lane. It tend to become a children's book writer because I write all sorts of things. When I saw a call for submission for children's books, I had something, to, uh, I had a children's story, I submitted it. And um, that train kind of took off down the tracks. Um, my most recent book, the Jungle Outside, similarly, because I published other children's books and because I was published when Matt Millen was looking to publish a line of um, Caribbean books in his Big Cat series, I was one of the authors they reached out to. And it so happened that I had a story that I hadn't placed anywhere. And I thought, okay, well, let me show this to them. And I also floated a number of ideas to them that I would have had to write, but The Jungle Outside is the one that came through. So long story short, sorry to be so long-winded, is my oh, publishing journey fascinating my publishing journey has not been a straight line and no two experiences have been the same like so i can't say this is how you get published what i will say is try to write a good story try to have try to invest in write, in getting the story edited and having the best possible version of that story and then being persistent and keeping your ear to the ground and networking and and 
looking online it's so easy now look online we have on my blog what are the pen we have opportunities being posted all the time i have publishers and markets and stuff posted all the time to try to and resources to try to guide writers give them the guidance that i didn't have so it's so much easier now to, to say okay there's a competition that if you win you can get your book published or there's a there's a prize you might have a short story in your book that you submit the short story and that then become something that could get you the ear or the eye or the attention of someone who's looking for new writers. So there's so many ways. And of course, a lot more people are self-publishing and publishing independently. And that's a way as well. For what I would say to that is the same thing. Hold yourself to the same rigor that a traditional publisher would and make sure you invest in editing and so that the book can sit on the shelf alongside any other book, even digitally, and not be found lacking whether story-wise or in terms of production quality. So it's not been a simple journey and it's a journey still continuing. Um, but the first one was, as I said, someone told me that they heard something and I submitted, I reached out. Similarly, when I see things online or things come to my inbox, I reach out. If it's not for me, I pass it on. And I just try to keep my ear open for opportunities. I just like to, just to see if I understood correctly, uh, for your first book, your first books, the, the, the publishing houses weren't in the Caribbean. They were no. uh, abroad. Yes. At the time, I didn't really know many publishing houses in the Caribbean. And there's still a few. I mean, even now, I mean, a publishing house locally, These, these are things, I mean, it, it very much, when I, when I was starting, if you wanted to get published, unless you're publishing independently, which was a lot more difficult then, and also there was a stigma against it that has kind of eroded since, you, you had to look to the UK or the US or Canada. That was just facts. And then you would have to convince them that in, in your story, I remember doing a pitch to an agent in the US and it's, it's trying to convince her that my story matters and it is not just like every other story. And it's like, you can feel yourself fighting through this. So I like to let the writing speak for itself. So I really hate pitching, <laughs> but um, to read the story, if you like it, you like it, if you don't, you don't. But um, a lot of times you have to pitch. Well, now you're sending a query letter and, and a few chapters and so on. So you, get, you are letting the writing speak for itself for the most part. But yeah, it was in the UK. Um, but the thing is, Macmillan had um, a huge market in the Caribbean at the time, and they were looking to put out a Caribbean writers series. And so that's kind of luck, preparation, meeting opportunity. Okay, because I, I, since I, I talked with other, other authors and none of y'all had the same experience. <laughs> So yeah, so so I, I really hope that people who will listen to 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 this podcast will realize that it doesn't matter what the process is to get your book out there, as long as you do it. As long as you do it, and again, I would say make sure the quality is good because once you're out, like I well, I'm speaking for myself as a reader. If I'm reading a book and I'm reading, um, some even if I remember this one book, a book club I belong to, we're reading this book that you know was very popular. But I couldn't get through a chapter because there were so many errors and so much, uh, just, I'm not going to name the book. It's not a Caribbean book. But mm -hmm. that for me is, it's like driving in a car, in a road with, with too many speed bumps. It takes me out of the story. Some people don't care, but I do. And so I'm that reader who will be like, okay, I'm, I'm done. So I, I, when I put my stuff out and that's what I would always encourage is make sure it's the best version of it, get it edited, um, 
if you don't have money to pay for an editor, get a few people to read it, get, give you some feedback, do a workshop, join a writer's group, do something to get it into the shape. And realizing as well, I think this is one of the things that I'm actually um, becoming open to is that realizing that, because when I was seeking to get published, that was the thing, you're trying to find a publisher out there. And there were none in the Caribbean that I was aware of. And so they were out there. Not only are there so many avenues, but there's so many avenues within a single publishing journey. You know what I mean? So like you could publish one book with an independent press. You could publish another book with a big publisher. You could self-publish another book. You could hybrid publish another book. You could put up, just decide to upload something online because you're not looking for, to be a, for it to be commercial in any way. Like there's so many ways for you to put your writing out now in a single body. Like it's, it's, it's like there, there's, there's um, it just depends on what you want the work to do and what spaces you want the work to exist in. Because part of what I know I wanted was I want my writing to be read once it was out there. I didn't want books that were just studied. And I said, just, that's a huge thing. When a book gets accepted, of course, into the scholastic spaces, that's a huge deal. But I also want people to want to read the book, not just reading it because they had to read it. So I kind of wanted the best of both worlds. I wanted books that were critically received and also books that were popularly received. And also, you know, if I could win some awards along the way, that'd be cool too. But that's in the dreaming space. In the, in the creative space, I'm just writing to tell the stories. But, you know, I dream big. And so um, it depends on what you want the book to do, how you put it out into, into the world. But um, there's so many ways to get there right now. More ways than there were when I was starting, to be sure. Yeah. And just so you know, I had an interview with author Wilsey Adams. And uh, we fangirled over your book, Dancing Nude in the Moonlight. So I think it's cool. Right. Yes. <laughs> because that's she, cool. And, and the, she's doing big things in the independent publishing space. And that's also why I, I created this platform, Tim Tim Wafik. It's not just about creating romance stories from the Caribbean. It's also to, to show my recognition. No my gratitude to authors. I just wanted to celebrate uh, the, the greatness that you create. I actually think you and I are kindred spirit in that sense, because one of my favorite things to do is, obviously I love to read, but I also love to talk about the books I read. Like, you can't shut me up about a book if I love it. Like, it's afterwards, because it's, it's like, I use this book's agent, publicist, like, why are you talking about this book so much? That's kind of who I am. So that's why I blog about books as well. It's because I, I interview authors sometimes as well, because in addition to being a writer, I'm just also a, a fangirl when it comes to not just even just the literary arts, but the arts in general. I love I love creativity and I love celebrating the creative. So I, I listen to you say that it, it's I feel a kinship with that sort of motivation because that's something that drives me as well. Uh, speaking of that, I know for the... 10th anniversary of Dancing Noon in the Moonlight, there was a re-edition of the book and there were fan fictions of it. A local bookstore, Best of Books, had um, done, had picked, this is when, um, after it had gone out of print with Macmillan, before it was back in print with Insomniac, um, they had done like a, because they had bought up the remainders of Dancing Noon after Macmillan decided to be done with it. And they had done like a, a made it their summer read. And so they had like a whole, it was one of the most beautiful nights. They had a, a, a beautiful summers because they had a, a dancing nude moonlight festival thing where they blocked off a street in the city and you had dancing and you had a, a drink created from 
the book. So basically, that was like if if there's fan fiction in different forms, right? And have a, a bartender or mixologist creating a drink inspired by the, the the story or inspired by something in the story. You had um, a ballroom dancing group doing a performance um, inspired by the story. So it was just different things happening, and it was like from something that I had created, and that was beautiful to me. And I had, you know, someone said to me that night that um, he had written something and he showed it to me. But also the other piece of fan fiction in there was part of the competition that that bookstore had that summer. They had a competition. Because one of the things I get a lot with Dancing Nude is where the rest, right? You know, you just end the story just so what happened after that. So um, the bookstore had the idea to, to host a next chapter competition. You want the rest? Okay, what happens next? So they invited people to write the next chapter. And the piece that I published in the book is actually the winning piece. Obviously, this book is coming out years after that. So I had to reach out to the guy with the poem and I had to reach out to the, the girl with the, the, the next chapter to um, get their permission to, to republish it. But my point is, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it feels tributary to have someone say, your, your work inspired me to create. I mean, how many times have I looked at a work of art and created in response to it? it I don't call it fan fiction. But that's kind of what it is. I mean, we don't call White Sargasso Sea fan fiction, but it was inspired or in response to another work of art. Fan fiction has its space in, in, in the, the in the world of the creative. I mean, as long as you're not um, being derivative and also they're, they're kind of blurry lines about profiting off of someone else's intellectual property. So that's a thing to, to consider. But to celebrate another work, I mean. In general, that's 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 a good thing, and it feels good when it in when it someone responds to your work enough to feel inspired to respond to it in some way. And so I was happy to include those pieces. I was, I was happy that I had any fan fiction at all. I mean, I didn't think, never dreamed that in 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 the bingo card of things that would happen to me in my writing career. I didn't have someone who write fan fiction about something that I wrote. So how do I feel about that? I feel great. I mean, who knew that could happen? But it did. Which writing advice would you give to your younger self? I would say, oh my God, I don't know. I think if I had to sum it up is believe earlier and, and be bolder. Don't doubt that you are a writer because you were born a writer. Now just go for it. I hope you enjoyed this discussion. Let me know in the comments. Let the record show that I want to be the one who will bring musical youth to the French-speaking community. This book should be a classic for every Caribbean country. You can follow Joanne C. Hillhouse on Instagram and Twitter at johadli, J-H-O-H-A-D-L-I. You can check out her writing website, johadli.wordpress.com. You can also follow her activities to develop the arts in Antigua and Barbuda at the Wadadli Pen website. Make sure to go and buy her books. This Caribbean women's community cannot exist without your support. Thank you for listening. Make sure to check out timtimboafik.com for more Caribbean books. You can email me at timtimboafik at gmail.com or you can follow me on Instagram at timtimboafik. You can listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Core. And to help the podcast get more visibility, share it with your friends, your family, your neighbors, and you can give it five stars on Apple Podcasts. I hope you enjoyed this episode. See you à dans d'autres soleils.